And open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I say this regularly. When we get to the end of a chapter, I feel like it's a celebration of sorts. <laughs> and I feel this way about chapter 13. Four weeks to go through these 13 verses. And I'm hopeful that it's been as meaningful to you as it has been for me. It's been challenging in a lot of ways. There's been depth and insight that I had not known prior to my study. And that's one of the great things about having to preach and teach is the study that it requires and what you learn from that. So, for the church of Corinth, the measure of spirituality, the way they measured their own spirituality, was by the spiritual gifts possessed by the individual. They specifically prioritized the gift of tongues and knowledge and prophecy above all others. And so, for that reason, Paul has used these three gifts as an ongoing example to help make his point very clear to them. He has indicated that possession of an individual spiritual gift is the sovereign choice of the Father given as He desired, and it has absolutely nothing to do with one's own spirituality. The pastor is no more spiritual than a person who only has the gift of mercy in the way one might think of that. I am no more spiritual because of my giftedness. We are more spiritual because of the love that we possess as a byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is what Paul has outlined in this chapter, that spirituality is measured by love not the possession of a particular spiritual gift. So to make this point abundantly clear in the first three verses, Paul writes these words, and yes, we're going to read through the chapter in its entirety. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul makes very, very clear the supremacy of love in determining one's spirituality, not the possession of an individual spiritual gift. Now, Paul uses a greatly exaggerated example of these individual gifts to make his point about the supremacy of love. In our next section, Paul goes through and clearly defines what the qualities of love look like that the Corinthians and we today are to use as the measure of our spirituality, not necessarily our spiritual giftedness. Now, these 15 qualities define what love is and is not, remembering that love is active, it is never passive. And so these aren't 15 different Types of love, these are 15 expressions of love, like petals of the same flower. As you pick them apart, you still are picking apart the same flower. So Paul defines the qualities of love. Verses 4 through 7, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account the wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These are the qualities of love that measure spirituality. These are the qualities that we're to evaluate the presence of in our own lives to determine our own spirituality. 
And in these final verses of chapter 13, Paul is going to describe, number three in your outline, the permanence of love. Here's what Paul says in these final verses of chapter 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child, act like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, Love, abide in these three, but the greatest of these is love. So as we look at the permanence of love, the first thing that we're going to look at here, letter A, is this statement here, love never fails. Paul uses the description of the permanence of love in this little three-word phrase, and this word, this phrase rather, serves as a transition. It connects backwards to what Paul has already said, and it also serves as an introduction of what Paul is going to say about the permanence of love. As it relates backwards to what Paul has said, it summarizes what he has said, that love is supreme, it exemplifies godly character, and it defines very clearly what agape love looks like. For this reason, love is never defeated, is never brought to the ground, it persists even when rebuffed, Love bears the strain of love. Now that does not mean that love always wins. As an example, Jesus lived in this world. He lived a life of sinless perfection. And not everybody repented of their sin, accepted Him as Lord and Savior, and committed to live a life to follow Him. So love it doesn't mean that love always wins. It means that love will never be brought to the ground as we express it. Love bears the strain of love. I love that phrase. The next the phrase also introduces what comes next because love is supreme and it exemplifies godly character. It never ends. For this reason, love never becomes invalid in this sense. It extends the idea of the final verb that is used in verse 7. Love always endures. So this expresses how you and I are to be committed to love, how we are to express love in the usage of our spiritual gifts, and how we are to live out our commitment to one another in love, where love never ends, it's never brought to the ground, love bears the strain of love. Now Paul is highlighting the prime failure of the Corinthians. They cherished these prized spiritual gifts, but they neglected and ignored the supremacy of love and the varied qualities of love that Paul has expressed to them. For them, gifts were an end to themselves, possessed for personal gain and for personal reward. As Paul has taught, gifts are possessed for the edification of the church and are to be expressed in love. That is why Paul said, if you can have the faith to remove a mountain but don't have love, you're nothing. 
Think about that. Think about having the ability to have enough faith, if it were possible, to move a mountain. Paul says you could do that and not exercise that gift and love. And you know you would be a big fat zero. That is nowhere on the radar of the Corinthians and how they measure spirituality. So having established these truths, Paul goes on to say, letter B, gifts are temporary. The last part of verse 8 says, But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So the gifts cherished most by the Corinthian church are temporary in duration as compared to the enduring supremacy and qualities of love. Now, as we look at this description here in verse 8, we've already talked about the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, that those are permanent in the church age, and that the sign gifts, miracles, tongues, and uh, healings, are temporary gifts. So here in this verse... Paul puts all gifts, especially the ones most cherished by the Corinthians, into an eternal perspective. Think about this. The most cherished thing in life has to be contrasted to an eternal perspective. If we don't do that, we get bogged down with the temporary nature of this world. We're going to talk about that in, a, in more in just a little bit. So Paul puts these gifts, especially the ones most cherished by the Corinthians, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, into an eternal perspective. There will come a time when all the gifts given by God, used through the endowment of the Holy Spirit will come to an end. They will be done away with. They will end. The usage of the word if here is not questioning the existence of these gifts, but it simply affirms that these gifts are possessed by believers. Depending upon your translation, it might be prefaced by a different word. So in the ESV, for example, it says, as for prophecies, as for tongues, as for knowledge. So there isn't a question as to the existence of these gifts It's simply enforcing that these gifts are temporary in nature. So again, Paul is putting spiritual gifts into an eternal perspective, especially as gifts compare to love. Prophecy will be done away with. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will be done away with. Now think about this. As a Christian, the parts of your Christian life that you express in service to the Lord... If this was your badge of honor, if this was your measure of spirituality, if this was the thing that made you feel like you were a worthwhile Christian, you are now being told, hey, put that into an eternal perspective. Compare that to the supremacy and to the qualities of love. You should say, oh, well, wait a minute, I've been thinking about this entirely wrong. This isn't as big a deal as I'm making it out to be. It doesn't mean that it isn't important, but as you compare it to the supremacy and to the quality of love, it isn't really as big a deal as I've made it out to be. Now, what is really interesting in this verse is the verb choice that Paul uses in describing the temporal nature of these gifts. Now, as we talked about before, 
with the speaking gifts and the serving gifts being permanent in the church age, and some who hold to the sign gifts, miracles, tongues, and healings being temporary in nature. This is a portion of where that rationale comes from, is in the usage of the verb that Paul uses here. So, done away with is from the word katageo in the Greek, which means to reduce to an activity or to abolish. So the gifts of prophecy and knowledge one day will be made inoperative. Now what we don't pick up on here is that this verb here in verse 8 and again in verse 10 is used in a passive tone of voice which means that something or someone is going to cause them to stop. So, knowledge and prophecy is going to be caused to stop by the external enforcement of someone or something else. Now, the verb cease here is from the, from the Greek verb poel, which means to stop or come to an end. There's a nuance here that isn't obvious in the English. So unlike katargeo, which when used of persons indicates intentional, voluntary action upon oneself, I am choosing to stop. Used of inanimate objects, it indicates a self-causing action. So the cause of stoppage comes from within. It is actually built into the gift of tongues. Now the way to express that is this way. God gave the gift of tongues a built-in stopping place. That gift will stop by itself. It will not have a passive force acted upon it in order to stop. So like a battery, it has a limited energy supply and a limited lifespan. One day, that battery is going to run out of energy. It's going to be flat if you're British, or it's going to be dead if you're English, and it's no longer going to serve or provide any energy. When its limits are reached, its activity automatically ends. So prophecy and knowledge will be stopped by something outside of themselves, but the gift of tongues will stop internally by itself. That's one of the reasons why those who ascribe to a temporal nature of the sign gifts believe that to be so is because of the distinction of the verb usage that Paul uses to explain the end of these gifts. And we're going to talk a lot more about the gift of tongues when we get to chapter 14. There's a lot that's been deferred and we'll get there. Next time, we're going to start that process. I have no idea how long chapter 14 is going to take. Please pray for me, because it's so difficult to know where to start and where to stop and what to include and what to leave out and what's relevant and what's extra. It's really difficult. So the question here for us today is this. As to when and how the gifts will end, prophecy and knowledge are said to end... When the perfect comes, that's what it says in verses 9 and 10, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. However, the cessation of tongues is not mentioned in relation to the coming of the perfect, so it appears that they will have ceased at an earlier time.
That is why they are not stopped by the same thing that stops the other two gifts. Now it occurs to me that I probably need to say this, and I will say this again next week. It's really interesting that when you look at the gift of tongues, it's mentioned here by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. It's mentioned in the earlier part of Acts with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not mentioned again after Acts chapter 19, which was probably 25 to 30 years after the crucifixion. Peter doesn't mention tongues. James doesn't mention tongues. Jude doesn't mention tongues. It seems to have stopped on its own before the end of the revelation of Scripture. Now, we'll talk more about that when we get into tongues in greater detail. So it appears that tongues has probably already stopped by the end of the revelation of the New Testament, which would indicate that it has stopped on its own, not by the time when the perfect comes. So Paul's point here is this, not to get bogged down in these Greek verbs and the nuances of them. Paul's point is this, love is permanent, And the gifts of the Spirit are temporary. So which one should we be most preoccupied with and desire to be present in our life? That's really the question. So this is one of the great struggles I believe we have in this life as a believer in this world is that distinction between the spiritual and the heavenlies and the temporary and the world that we live in. And we're often not aware of how we have allowed ourselves to merge our way into the things of the world. We know our lives are brief in comparison to eternity. We know this world is temporary in nature and that an eternity is on the horizon. And I think the older we get, the more we recognize how quickly that horizon is coming. But if you're in your 20s or your 30s, you're thinking, yeah, I mean, that's forever. When you get to your 60s and your 70s, you go, where did the time go? It's here. It's imminent. We know this world is temporary. We know the struggle of living in light of eternity. Let me say that again. We know the struggle of living in light of eternity while we live out our days in this temporary world. And we could go back and reread what Ken has read in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. We, we know the struggle of living in this temporary body with temporary problems and challenges, don't we? I've said this many, many times. With each new decade, there's a new, there's a new set of physical problems that arise. Isn't that right? Forties are greatly different from thirties, and fifties from forties, and sixties from fifties and seventies. You go, oh my gosh, how much worse can it get than the eighties? Come, and you're just hanging on by a thread. That's what it feels like. But we know the struggle of the temporary and the eternal. But we often find great conflict. And living the way we know we should. For example, we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, amen, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Listen, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Does your affliction feel light? Does it feel temporary? No, it does not. 
Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How focused are we on the here and now, what we can see, and how absent from our thought process can those things that we cannot see actually be? It is very easy to get preoccupied with the world and be influenced by its ways. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Why do you think Paul found it necessary to write these words to the church of Colossae. Because it was a problem. It's continuing to be a problem. Our focus is to be on the spiritual things, on life in eternity, not life in this world. Philippians 4, eight. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now the question is this. How much of this description can we find in the world as we know it? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe, maybe just a little bit. How much of this can we find in the heavenly places, in the person of God, in the work of Christ, in the hope of our eternity? Dwell on these things. We must fight the fight to be focused on the eternal and not be bogged down on the temporary. So Paul wants to point them and us towards eternity and unhinge us from an unhealthy preoccupation with the temporary nature of their lives and the temporary nature of spiritual gifts, especially in light of love. Letter C. Gifts are partial. These are two often quoted verses, and I think they're probably not expressed as accurately to the passage as they could be, But gifts are partial. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now this is a really important truth. This is so important that we really need to underline this in our Bibles and come back and meditate on it and revisit it. God's gifts are complete. God's gifts are complete. But those to whom He gives them are limited. Think about that. God's giftedness to the church, God's revelation of Himself is complete, yet to those whom it has been given, we are limited. Paul includes himself in the we. Even the apostles knew in part and prophesied in part. Think about that. They were the ones through whom the Holy Spirit inspired the eternal Word of God, yet they knew in part and they prophesied in part because they themselves were limited. With God's revelation of Himself being complete in the pages of our Bible, there is still much about Him that we do not know and that we cannot know. If you remember our discussion on Christian liberty, 
and we had a lot of fun talking about this in our second hour. If you remember the conversation, you probably don't. I'll remind you, 1 Corinthians 8.2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Can you remember this? So the wise man knows that he does not know, but the foolish man does not know that he does not know. <laughs> it's like kids. Teenagers do not know what they do not know. It's a parent's responsibility to impart on upon them that you don't know what you don't know. You're just going to have to understand that and appreciate that and listen to those who will help you know what you do not know. <laughs> so though God's word and the enlightenment of the Holy excuse me, through God's word and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, we can have a true knowledge of God and his provision for our salvation through Christ. He has provided all the knowledge we need in order that we can know him and serve him more in fact than any man could ever comprehend. Yet, God's written word does not exhaust the truth about Him. (sighs) Look at your Bible. Look at the pages. Look at the amount of truth that it holds. Who understands all of it? But God has given us all we need to know about Him. God has given us all we need to know about how we can know Him. God has given us all we need to know about how to serve Him. Yet all that God has given us, it still does does not exhaust all the truth about Him. Listen to this. Infinite revelation about the infinite God would be ridiculous and useless. Infinite revelation about the infinite God would be ridiculous and useless. Why? Because finite minds could not encompass or comprehend infinite truth. And on top of that, man's mind not only is finite, but is depraved. In God's wisdom, He gave us all the knowledge we need, but He did not give us the capacity for all knowledge in this life on earth. God has given us the capacity to love one another with an agape love, but God has not given us the capacity to know everything about the infinite God. So as Paul points us and them towards eternity, we see something even greater than the spiritual gifts the Corinthians prize so highly. And we find that here in the latter part of verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What is the perfect? That's a big question, right? What is the perfect? We could take a lot of time talking about what it could be. I'm just going to tell you what it is. The perfect is the eternal heavenly state of all believers when life on this earth is over and you are ushered into the presence of God for an eternity. Then the perfect comes and the partial will be done away. As verse 12 is going to tell us, we will know fully just as we also have been fully known. But that's jumping ahead, so we're not going to get there yet. We've got to go through these verses. So let's look at the illustrations that Paul uses to illustrate this point to us. That these gifts are partial. So the illustrations are found in verses 11 and 12, and they contrast the temporary, incomplete nature of gifts 
with the eternal, complete nature of love. Both of these illustrations are designed to contrast the present with the future. Verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, in terms of human development, which Paul is using as an analogy here, childish talk, childish thought, childish reasoning are things that are normal and appropriate for a child. But when one becomes an adult... Childish things are put away. There is an understanding that in the childish realm of, of human development, there's a partial knowledge, understanding, growth, etc., etc. But when one becomes an adult, the childish things are done away. It's a way of contrasting the past, excuse me, the present with the future. Paul is not making an accusation that they are like children or that they are being childish. It's simply a way for Paul to contrast the present with the future, which his audience would have understood very clearly. So there's a time when childish things are put away for adulthood in the same way spiritual gifts will be put away when the eternal comes. Now, the second illustration is found here in verse 12, and it's probably a little bit more clear in how we apply that or how we might understand the illustrations that Paul is making here. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, When you and I look in a mirror today, we need to recognize that mirrors today are very, very different from mirrors of the first century. When you look in a mirror today, you see a pretty accurate representation of who you are, of what you look like. I went to the uh, optometrist some time ago for an eye checkup, and they, they used one of those magnification mirrors so that I could see better to put the contact lens in my eye. And when I saw that magnification lens and I got a close put in, I said, oh my goodness, I didn't know that I looked like that. I mean, have you ever looked at one of those mirrors? I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like looking at your face microscopically, and you kind of go, ooh. It's not what Paul's talking about here. In the first century, they didn't have mirrors like that. They used polished brass or bronze. So this polished bronze would give you a a resemblance of what you looked like. But that picture of yourself that you would see would be dim. You couldn't see all of the pores. You couldn't see all of the blemishes. You probably couldn't see all of the eyebrows. You couldn't see all of your features with incredible clarity. And you might say, well, that's a pretty good thing. But that's the idea that Paul is using here, is that Paul is saying, hey, look, when you look in a mirror right now, you don't see very clearly. You see very, very dimly. In this present life, even with God's Word completed and the illumination of His Spirit, we see knowledge as if it were lit dimly or reflected back to us in a mirror that is that cannot reflect the full, complete understanding or knowledge of the truth of God's Word. 
In our present state, we're not capable of seeing more. It's like looking in a piece of polished bronze. You can see some of it, but you just can't see it with great clarity. But when we enter into the Lord's presence, then we will see face to face. We will see Him face to face. And when we see Him face to face, we will have full and complete knowledge the partial will be done away. You know what that means? It tells us what it means in the last part of verse 12. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Just as God fully knows us, we will fully know Him. Think about that. You will fully know the creator of this universe. You will know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of the unknowns will be known. The unrevealed mysteries will be revealed. All of the unanswered questions will be resolved. We will know Him perfectly just as He knows us Perfectly, The finite will know the infinite. Wow! The partial will be done away and the full will be experienced and it will be unlike anything we can even begin to imagine. Now again, Paul's purpose here is to point them away from the incomplete temporary nature of spiritual gifts and to focus them on the superior eternal nature of love. That's Paul's entire point through this teaching here in chapter 13. He concludes this section by restating what he has already said in a slightly different way. Letter D, love is eternal. Verse 13 says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul mentions the three greatest Christian virtues we could ever know. Faith, hope, and love. But he says something very, very important here. And he says something here that I don't think is very obvious. And it was incredibly humbling to see this in my time of study. Think about this. Because faith and hope will have no purpose in heaven. Think about that. Faith will have no purpose in heaven. Why? Because we will know fully. Hope will have no purpose in heaven. Why? Because every good thing will be perfectly and completely possessed. Because of this, faith and hope are not equal to love. Love is the greatest of these because love is eternal. Love is the greatest not only because it will outlast all other Christian virtue, but because it is inherently greater by being the most God-like. God does not have faith. God does not have hope. But God is love. 
And so for this reason, love is the greatest of the virtues, and because love is most like God, it is eternal. Spiritual gifts, ministries, virtues like faith and hope will one day cease to exist because they will cease to have purpose or meaning. But in that perfect day when we see our Lord face to face, love for us will be just the beginning. When God rips the veil off of what we don't know and of what we have only hoped to possess, our understanding of love will just begin. What we will one day know in the future is what our present day is supposed to be all about. Not about the gifts, not about what God has given to you, but love, because love is supreme, love is most like God, and love is eternal. There will be no purpose or faith or hope when we see Him face to face. It will all be fully experienced and fully realized. What a mighty God we serve.